shove just like that. Is it going? Yeah. Yep, we got a signal. And then just shove all the cord and everything in your bar. It's just complicated. Okay, we're going to take a look. So I, I made a couple of, uh, ouch, I'm getting old. I made a couple of uh, decisions because of some of the complex issues that we've been talking about. And I had at least a momentary weakness. I made copies of all my notes. So there's about 40 pages, give or take of notes that are available for you guys that Levi made copies of that are in the back somewhere. Where'd you put them? Oh, they're in the office. So that's a long ways from everybody. So we have them. So if you want them uh, afterwards, so you can kind of look through and compare your notes to, or um, I try to footnote all the stuff that I got. So you know where I'm pulling it from, or if you want to do other research, you'll be able to do that. So as we take a look tonight, Again, we, we, uh, I want to, if you have questions as we're going, just stop me and we'll talk about it. Uh, as we deal with apologetics, our, our kickoff verse, our, our main verse that we're working through or from is 1 Peter 3.15. And the concept, at least for us, um, we're kind of looking as we go through apologetics, we're talking about two kinds, what's called evidentiary apologetics. And we're talking about uh, presuppositional apologetics. One of the things that sets those things, those two schools of thought apart is the first part of the verse. First Peter 3.15 says, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Sanctify the Lord. It's the concept is, before we give a defense, we give a defense from the standpoint that we are uh, honoring Christ. That we have set Him... As our Lord, He's our ultimate foundation. That's our beginning point. One of the things that we're going to be talking about tonight is the self-authenticating model of canon. And when we talk about the self-authenticating model of canon, it's important to recognize anytime we get to an ultimate authority, all ultimate authorities are circular. The important thing is to not have them be viciously circular. And we'll talk about that a little bit more when we get to it. But... At some point, when you get to the bottom, right, the bo- whatever your bottom place of authority is, at that point, you will say, because I said so. Or in our case, because God said. Why is it? Because God said. God has condescended and revealed himself to us. He's my ultimate authority. So that's what I mean by it's circular. Well, well, how do you know God exists? Because God said so. God I start with God. I don't try to start somewhere else and move to God. The idea we talked about that there's no such thing as neutrality. No, There's no neutral. Jesus said you are either for me or against me. In the world, same thing. For me or against me, nothing neutral. So since nothing else is neutral, neither should we try to be. Sometimes I think when we try to, to share or give a defense of our faith, we try to come... From a neutral point, we probably should stop doing that. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to surrender. They they don't want to believe in the Word of God. That's up to them. But that's where I'm coming from. That's my foundation. That's my authority. That's, That's how I know the things I know that God's revealed from me. And so that without God, 
I don't know that I can know anything. So he's the premise that we want to start from. So we sanctify the Lord God in our hearts and always be ready. Always means how much of our time? Oh, so it covers a lot, right? So we always want to be ready to give a defense for uh, to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. So I want to be able to give a apologia, a defense. I want to be able to give an apologia. So one of the things we talked about, uh, um, and hopefully a lot of this stuff is just, uh, it's not rehearsed, what is it? Reviewed. That's what I was thinking, or repeated from earlier notes. You can take a look at some of those things. But one of the areas that you're going to face a pretty common attack is the area of our uh, foundational authority, our ultimate authority, which ultimately is God and how he has revealed himself to us through his word. So we've been talking about the canon for three weeks. This is the third week of canon. Pretty close, isn't it? Two and then uh, next week we'll do textual transmission and criticism, and then we'll move on uh, from there to whatever was next in our um, in our what you call it? What do you call it? Our syllabus. So we'll go on to the next topic from there. So either way, I'm going to finish up in canon. If I don't get all the way through, you will have another. 20-some pages of notes. You're welcome to look through. Call me. Ask me. Hey, Jackie, I was reading the notes. says this. What's that talking about? And we can go over those things. So we're going to talk tonight about the self-authenticating model of canon. What do I mean when I talk about canon? Where did the Bible come from? Who picked the books? Why these books? Why not other books? That's the establishment of the canon. The canon is a word that means the rule, uh, the basis behind it. A lot of the stuff that we've already discussed about canon from last time, I'm not going to get into this time. I'm going to now kind of focus in on the, the model of canon or where I, where I believe the books of the Bible came from that we have today. Uh, there's really not much of a discussion or a complaint about Old Testament canon. I'm not going to spend any time on Old Testament canon. Um, we're going to talk about New Testament canon. That's where the majority of attacks come from. So... The canon is God's word is our criteria of truth. It's our ultimate authority. So as our ultimate authority, um, if we validate it in any other way, it becomes, if we don't validate it by itself, self-authenticating, if we don't validate it by itself, something else has authority over our ultimate authority, thereby meaning it's not an ultimate authority. You guys understand what I mean? If I say the church authorizes the Bible, who has authority over the Bible? The church has authority over the Bible. So who's the ultimate authority? Church. That is, by the way, the Roman Catholic model. If I say, um, you know, if if there's whatever there is, if it's not the word of God that is the authority over the word of God, then it's not ultimate. All ultimate authorities have to bear witness to themselves. They, They either stand the test of, yes, this is, an ultimate authority, and we can see it, or they don't. William Alston said this, If we want to know whether, as a Christian tradition would have it, God guarantees the Bible as a source for fundamental religious beliefs, what recourses are except to what we know about God? His nature, His purposes, His plans, His actions. And where do we go for that knowledge? In the absence of any promising suggestions to the contrary, we have to go to the source 
to uh, the source of belief credentials which are under scrutiny. We have to go to the Bible. So let's talk about it. The epistemic environment of a self-authenticating canon. So the, the learning environment, epistemic, is how do we know? How do we know something is self-authenticating? What's the test? Okay, there's three things. I'm going to give you those three things first. The first one is providential exposure. In order for a book to be canon, it has to be exposed to the body of Christ. If it's not exposed to the body of Christ, it's not canon. That's where lost books are going to fall. That's where if tomorrow they dug something up, that's where it would fall. If you have 2,000 years of history of the church and they didn't need it, it might be have value in terms of information or historical value, but it's not going to be canon because if it was necessary for the church, it would have been there for the church. Providential exposure. Second point is it will have attributes of canonicity. Attributes of canonicity. There are three attributes of canonicity. Divine qualities, which means it has the marks of divinity, the same qualities that we see in God. If it's God's word, it ought to, it ought to bear his fingerprints. Um, the second of the attributes of canonicity is corporate reception which means it would be recognized by the church as a whole. And the third and probably most important out of that is apostolic origin. Apostolic origin has to begin uh, with the apostles. Um, canonical books are the result of a redemptive historical activity of the apostles. God, Jesus Christ, sent the apostles. The same authority that the Father has sent me, I send you. That's what Jesus said to the apostles. They were given a job. Part of that job was to take the record of the concept of the new covenant that they watched in the life of Christ and make it available to everyone after. And that would be the work of, of uh, canonicity, the apostolic origin. The last one, okay, of the, the environment of the self-authenticating canon, providential exposure. The whole church has, have to, has to have an opportunity Attributes of canonicity, we just talked about divine qualities, corporate reception, apostolic origins. The third, uh, the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Have to have the internal testimony of the Holy Spirit. Okay, in the life of mankind, we've talked about this before. It's one of the struggles when we, when we do apologetics from an evidentiary point of view. We're counting on the reasoning ability or honesty of the person we're sharing with. And one of the problems with that is what is called the, the noetic effects of sin. The idea that sin affects our reasoning. That part of our, the fall of man is not just a physical fall. It's not just a spiritual fall. It affects every aspect right down to our reasoning. Because we are in rebellion against God in our natural state, every lost person is in a state of rebellion against God, whether they acknowledge it or not, is, is irrelevant. This, the problem with that part of sin in their life is that their reasoning is also fallen. So their natural reasoning is going to go away from God. That's why Scripture says Holy Spirit has to draw. That's why Scripture says that, that God has to move in somebody's life. He opens her eyes. He softens her heart. Whatever language you want to put on it, that, that has to be overcome. 
So when we're sharing with somebody, that's one of the things we talked about the first night. I always want to, as much as possible, utilize the Word of God because the Bible tells us the Word of God is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to do a work inside somebody's heart. My words have no power. I can even yell really loud, and they still don't have any power. It just makes more noise. It's, it's that work. So that... The, the, the work of the Holy Spirit through the Word of God uh, has to happen in order for us to see or recognize canonicity in the book. So let's, uh, let's work our way through some of those concepts. Providential exposure. So we talked about that. If God did not bring uh, the corporate exposure to the church, then we have no basis for thinking that this word, this book is a requirement for canonicity in other words god is able to um, preserve his word and to bring his word in where it needs to go he sent the apostles he had the apostles write the books they wrote we know for example we talked about it last time paul wrote more than two books two epistles to corinth so if we have a lost book of corinth Sometimes people worry, oh, it's a lost book. How can you have a canon? But if, if the book is lost, we didn't need it. It wasn't necessary to institute the new covenant, which is kind of the concept we're building toward. If it, was, if it was necessary for the new covenant, we would have it. If we don't have it, we don't need it. What we have is ultimately the things that we need. So it doesn't mean that they wouldn't have valued lost books, uh, uh, some of those things, but but ultimately, <clears throat> that's the one place where we can see a, a, a distinction between canon and scripture. All uh, everything the apostles put together is is scripture. What we have in the Bible is canon. When when Paul wrote that epistle to the Corinthians, the what's called the harsh epistle, it was necessary for them. They needed it. If it was necessary for us, we'd have it. If you think, oh, I don't know about that, then you have a low view of God. So we'll have to, we have to back up and start there. In other words, God is sovereign, right? The one who we say spoke the world into being. If he wanted the book, the book be there. If he doesn't, it's not. So lost books for me are, are kind of a non-issue. If they dig up books, they dig up books all the time. Uh, well, I shouldn't say all the time. They have found books. We're going to talk about some of those tonight if I don't rattle on so long. So anyways, that gives us a basic idea. Why did God give his word to the church? Romans fifteen four. For whatever things were written before were written for our learning that we through patience and the comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Why did God bring together the books we have in scripture? That's why. What did he say? He said... We have these things which were written before for our learning so that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. It doesn't say I did this so you would have every word ever written or spoken by the apostles. No, it's this is what we needed for learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. Second Timothy 3.16, we've read a few times. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for what? Doctrine, okay, that's, uh, that's learning for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So the, the books that we have provide for us the ability to, to have what we need to be the men and women that God's calling us to be. Now, if that's God's plan with His Word, is God able to accomplish that? Psalm 135.6, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does, in heaven and in earth, in the seas, and in all the deep places. So in all, everywhere we go, everywhere we look, God does what He pleases. The Lord does what He pleases. God accomplishes His will. Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He, God, does according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? So that's Nebuchadnezzar writing in Daniel chapter 4 after the period of time when he was crazy. So those, by the way, are not the only scriptures that talk about the sovereignty of God, just a sampling. God, is, God does, accomplishes what he wants to accomplish. So, so God has a purpose for his word. He accomplishes that purpose and he presents to us, as we see as we look through the evidence, uh, a canon the moment the apostles set down the pen. The last book was written, and it depends on, on how you want to argue. The last book is written in 96 AD when John set down his pen, the Bible was finished. The books were throughout the church, passed throughout the church, it was all there was done then. For three centuries after that, uh, the church says, here's our official list of the Bible. All that is, is the church affirmation of what's already happening within the church. You understand what I'm saying? The church is just affirming what's our, how did they affirm it? They said, hey, what's all the books we're using? Oh, here they are. Boom, 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 boom. As early as 150 A.D., we have a core of New Testament. The core meaning the only books really that were under, that have ever been under any scrutiny for the most part is James, Jude, Second Peter, Second, Third John, and Revelation. So that's it. Everything else was part of the core by the second century. So uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. Okay, so here's the... The, the, the idea that the scriptures were presented to the people, the, the church in the first century were exposed. So when I talk about texts, I'm, pro, I'm primarily going to focus on the first uh, uh, three, four centuries uh, for the text. Jason asked me last week, I thought we had more texts than that. Well, we do, but those texts are more current. So if I'm not talking about the 6th century, 7th century, 8th century, I'm just talking about the first four. All the way back as close to the apostles as we can get. Does that make sense with everybody? So uh, here's the attributes of canonicity. What are the divine qualities that we see in the Word of God? Okay, because the canonical books are constituted by the activity of the Holy Spirit, we should expect the imprint of the Holy Spirit. So one of those imprints that we're looking for is the beauty and excellency of the Scriptures. The Scriptures being from God ought to bear the very attributes of God Himself. So we should see 
those fingerprints, confirming the identity of God behind what's going on. When men encounter God, they are vividly aware of His beauty, His majesty, His perfection. They don't need any further evidence that He is God. So let's look at it. If you got your Bibles with you, just go to Psalm 19. If I give you a nickel, will you do me a favor? I'm not really going to give you a nickel. There's a Diet Dr. Pepper in my fridge. Would you grab it? I got to wet the whistle. Okay, Psalm 19. Begin at verse 1. Uh, We'll just do the first ten verses. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows His handiwork. So remember we talked, there's two forms of revelation uh, that we see, right? Uh, There is um, general uh, revelation that we see in nature. And there's special revelation that we see in His Word. So we see Him talking about about uh, general rev- uh, uh, revelation here. The heavens declare the glory of God, the beauty, the majesty, the stuff people... When people say they look through the Hubble telescope and they see these incredible things. Yeah, that's because God's an incredible artist. And He put all that stuff together. It's pretty amazing to take a look at. Uh, the firmament shows His handiwork. Day into day, utter speech. Night into night reveals knowledge. There's no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tabernacle for a son, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, from that point, he's looking at God and describing the majesty and beauty of God. Then he looks to his word. To the beauty and, and majesty, excellency of His Word. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, and sweeter than honey and the honeycomb. So we have the the idea in Scripture, the beauty and the excellency of God uh, attributed to Him and attributed uh, to His Word. We we look at what did the early church fathers say about God's word uh, and its beauty. So we read in Jerome's commentary on Philemon. He defended the epistle on the grounds that it's a document which has in it so much of the beauty of the gospel, which is the mark of its inspiration. That's what Jerome had to say. Chrysostom declares that in the gospel of John, there is nothing counterfeit because the gospel is uttering a voice which is sweeter and more profitable than that of any harp or any music, something great and sublime. Origen defends the canonicity of the book of Jude and says it is filled with the healthful words of heavenly grace. And he defends the canonical gospels because of their truly venerable and divine contents. 
uh, right before talking about Matthew and the Philippians, Clement of Alexandria says, you can distinguish the words of men from the words of Scripture. No one will be so impressed by the exhortations of any of the saints as he is by the word of the Lord himself. And on and on it goes ad infinitum. Uh, if you have time to take a look at the writings of the early church fathers, you can work your way through. So we see they saw in the word of God beauty and excellency. Then we look at the efficacy and powers. We talk about the divine qualities, uh, the efficacy and power. The idea that the scripture testifies to itself uh, in the way that it functions in the life of the reader. How it changes life. What it accomplishes in the heart and and mind of those who read it. One of the first things we see is that the Word of God says that it will bring wisdom. In Psalm 119.98, Yea, through your commandments, or uh, yes, yea, through your commandments, make me wiser than my enemies, for they are ever with me. 2 Timothy 3.16, we've already talked about all Scripture given by inspiration of God, Theos Nustos, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, correction, for instruction in righteousness. Scripture gives joy to the heart. Nehemiah 8, 8 through 12 says, So they read distinctly from the book in the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn nor weep for all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, drink the sweet, send portions to those for whom nothing is prepared. For this day is holy to the Lord. Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites quieted all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and to drink, to send portions, and rejoiced greatly, because they understood the words that were declared to them. You have the declaration that the word of God brings joy and the historical record in Nehemiah that shows it is so. Psalm 119, 111. Your testimonies I have taken as a heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. The word of God would provide light for the dark paths of life. Your word is a, a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Psalm 119, 105. In fact, Psalm 119 is all over this because the entire psalm, the longest chapter in the Bible, is all about the attributes of God's Word. Uh, the Word of God gives understanding to the mind. Psalm 119, 144. The, righteous, the righteousness of your testimonies is everlasting. Give me understanding and I shall live. It brings peace and comfort. Psalm 119.50, this is my comfort and my affliction, for your word has given me life. It will expose sin and guilt. 2 Kings 22.11, now it happened when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And he commanded that Hilkiah the priest, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Achbor the son of Micaiah, and Shaphan the scribe, and Asai the a servant of the king, saying, Go inquire the Lord for me, for the people and for all Judah concerning the words of this book that has been found. 
For great is the wrath of the Lord that is aroused against us, because our fathers have not obeyed the words of this book to do according to all that is written concerning us. It will expose sin. Hebrews 4.12 says, The word of God is living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him with whom we must give account. And it leads to prosperity and blessing. Psalm 1, Blessed is a man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. It's not simply that scriptures say that they are the revelation of God that is the evidence for them being so, but it is that they function as a word of God. One element of scripture functioning as a word of God is the idea that the Bible purports to give an analysis or a diagnosis of the reader. It, it is connected with this in the power of scriptures to raise and satisfy certain distinctive needs to the reader. Connected with this is the displaying of, in scripture of excellent moral standards. And connected with this is the provision of new motivations to reach out for a new set of standards. A concept that the Bible lays out for us that there is in us a new creation created for Christ Jesus for good works that God has ordained that we should walk in them. It lays out the concept that it's there and then gives us the power and or slash the desire to do so. The, the fingerprints of God, if you will, the, the things that we would expect uh, uh, coming from something that is divinely inspired. Next, we want to look at the unity and harmony of the Scripture. We're still looking at the fingerprints of God. We're still looking at the divine qualities of Scripture. So when we say that God's revelation is consistent with itself, what do we mean? It's consistent in regard to what? There are three different categories in which this consistency and unity can be expressed. Doctrinal, redemptive, historical, and structural. So under doctrinal unity or the things that it teaches, you have 66 books created or written by 40 different authors over a time frame of 1,500 years on, I think, at least three different continents, uh, countries. We have... We have this incredible diversity bringing it together, yet it speaks with one voice on the nature of God, the makeup of man, the nation of Israel, the purpose and the structure of the church, the person and the work of Christ, the message of forgiveness and redemption, the importance of holiness, the role and function of the sacraments, and eschatology in the last days. So when we speak of doctrinal unity, uh, when, when we talk about it with other divine revelation, it's just another way of saying that the book is orthodox. It is in agreement with itself and with what has developed in the church uh, since the Word of God has been with us. Let's take a look at the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, M.F. Wiles once declared 
There was never a time when the church was without written scriptures. From the beginning, she had the Old Testament, and it was, for her, the oracles of God. So we're talking about canonicity. We're talking about divine qualities. What would be the divine qualities that we would see in a New Testament writing that purported to be a scripture that was God-breathed, handed to the church? One of the first things is it would be in agreement with the Old Testament. If it's not in agreement with the Old Testament, it didn't come from God. It's not God's. It doesn't flow. And I want you to keep in mind, we're going to kind of build on this idea, but I want you to keep in mind, how did the Old Testament end? Did it, was it just completed? When we come to the end of the Old Testament, you are longing and waiting for what? For the, you're, you're waiting for more. You're looking for a Messiah, a promised prophet that uh, Moses talked about. What else are you looking for? The institution of a new covenant. The new covenant wasn't instituted in the Old Testament. The Lord said, the day will come when I will write my law on their hearts. I'm going to put it inside man, not outside man. There's a new covenant coming, but the, the book ends. It just stops. Boom, over. 400 years of silence. So you have an expectancy that the story is going to be completed, right? So the New Testament or the new covenant stories, the, the, the documents that would come together to make up the New Testament would agree with the old. They would continue the story. You with me? It would continue the story of what's going on. So that's what we're looking for. Any version of Christianity from the beginning that was at odds with the Old Testament was gone. That's what cleansed out the concept of Gnosticism uh, that, uh, that began uh, second, third, fourth centuries. <clears throat> and it's what keeps out a lot of those things you hear people say, well, how come the Gospel of Thomas is not in? Oh, there's so many reasons, but... Uh, one of the primary reasons is it, it was not written till the 4th century, steeped in Gnosticism, uh, rejects the Old Testament. And it says that for a woman to be really blessed by God, let me see if I can get it right. If she would be able to change her sex, God would bless her. Oh, that's weird. Isn't that weird? Does that sound like the Old Testament? Sound like the voice of God? Does it sound like the stuff we heard? Is it the continuation of the story? But every time I hear somebody talking about the idea of, of what, where's all, how come these books aren't in the Bible? Well, read them and you'll see. They're full of craziness. Not the kind of thing that we see on the page of Scripture. We'll talk about that if we get that far. Uh, okay, so let's, we move from the Old Testament. It's going to be in agreement with the Old Testament. This is what we're saying. It's going to line up with what's gone before. Uh, it's also, uh, we have a core New Testament. So in this doctrinal unity, we have a core New Testament. Uh, some uh, New Testament books, especially Paul's major epistles and the four Gospels, have been recognized as authoritative from a very early time. Pretty much all of Paul's epistles, to include Hebrews, even though uh, they didn't attribute, for whatever reason, it was lumped in with Paul's writings, it wasn't in the general epistles. Um, Paul's writings in the four Gospels were all part of what we have as a core New Testament from the get-go, from the beginning, right out the gate. So those things were already foundational and fundamental uh, right at the beginning. Also, as we're, as we're still looking at the doctrinal unity, you have the rule of faith. I forgot I was going to make you guys a copy of the rule of faith. 
Well, the rule of faith is basically the very first creed that ever occurred. You guys know what a creed is? Like the Apostles' Creed, the Nisong Creed. Uh, so the, 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 this was the very first. Way before all of those, first century, it was the basic creed. Where would that basic creed come from? The core New Testament books. The core teachings of Jesus Christ as an apostle. And you see in that development of that document, which we have, uh, that you see in the core development of that document, the doctrinal unity already in the, in the first and second century coming out. So we have Jesus in the first century. Second century is the next century after him. So it's not all that far removed. And certainly in the lifetime of those who saw him, knew him, or knew those who walked with him. So at that time you have this doctrinal uh, concept, the, the rule of faith that laid out the teachings. A lot of the early church fathers uh, that will that will back up the the concepts of the things that are put together with that. So it pulled the the, the doctrine straight out of that uh, New Testament core. Interestingly, there's also uh, all the other books, the general epistles that weren't part of the original uh, core that developed that, that was widely. It's just like today, everybody studies Paul, everybody spends time in the Gospels. Those are just the area where people spend the majority of the time. So there's more copies and more familiarity with them. It doesn't mean that the general epistles weren't also a part of that doctrinal unity that we see. It just is more evident to see it in Paul and the early Gospels. Okay, the second part, redemptive historical unity. So when we look at that, the story uh, from Genesis to Revelation is telling the same overarching redemptive story of God, reconciling fallen humanity to himself through the person of Jesus Christ. 66 books, 40 authors telling one story, God's redemption of man. One story. Not, not some other story, not some other branch. If it was, it would not have been canon. It would not have been part of the, the rule of authority that came through the apostles to lead the church that came from the things Jesus spoke when he was here. He said how much authority was given to him? All authority in heaven and earth. And then what did he tell his disciples that were gathered there? Go. Go. So what's he saying? All the authority that I have, I'm giving you. Go. Teach. And we're going to see those things on the page of Scripture. That the guys writing the books know they're writing Scripture. They're not thinking they're writing a letter to Aunt Mary. And 400 years later, somebody says, it's Scripture. That's not what happened. They say, Paul speaks with authority. Look, I'm an apostle. Did you know who I am? I'm an apostle. I'm one of the foundational guys to lay out the groundwork and the, and the foundations of the church. That's why he would write corrective letters. That's why he would deal with some of those issues. So we'll see those things as we, as we work our way through. The unity between the Old Testament books and the New Testament books is such that they are not just a collection of individual stories on a variety of topics, but they combine together to form one story of salvation. It is this overall unified story that shows the Old Testament and the New Testament to be, in fact, one book made up of separate parts over 1,500 years brought together. One story. One story beginning to end. And there's some amazing things that we'll see in the structural unity. So let's look at that. Structural unity, how it's put together. How it's put together. Part of the internal evidence of the authenticity of the New Testament is demonstrated in the way 
that the 27 books fit together as a structural completion of the 39 books of the Old Testament. So the New Testament completes the Old. Completes the Old. It's not random. It's not random thoughts coming together. It completes the, low, the, the Old. So what I want you to see, and I'll probably touch some more on this. I don't know if I'll have time to do it, but the Bible is written in a covenantal structure. There's a covenantal structure to how the Bible is put together. There's very specific ways that that covenantal structure is utilized in all the legal documents that we see from that time period. The Bible follows the, the, the basic uh, set of that. But let's look at the book of Exodus to give you an example. Let's look at uh, the book of Exodus and parallel it with the Gospels. So uh, when we uh, compare the Gospels to the book of Exodus, each one includes the inauguration of a covenant, one the new, one the old, through a core salvific event. A, a, a large amount of space devoted to the salvific event itself. A combination of both narrative and moral instructions. So you have a story of what's happening and moral instructions that are a part of yet future. A focus in the life and the death of the covenant mediator. And a giving of the law or teachings of the covenant and or the covenant mediator. The Gospels are built like that. The book of Exodus is built like that. The primary example in the Old Testament when God says he wants the people to remember back to what he's done for them. Where does he take them? Takes them back to Egypt, right? Remember when I brought you out of Egypt. That was the core event that institutes in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, and the giving of the law. And I want you to just see it all. There'd be a preamble. The preamble would be uh, put together by who is the one putting the document together. How does God say it? I am the Lord your God. And then he describes what he did for them. Who brought you out of Egypt? Then there would be the concept of here's what the rules are of the covenant. Well, one of those areas that we would see that easily in Exodus, the Ten Commandments. Here's what's expected. Now, after the Ten Commandments, what do we have? Blessings and cursings. What happens if you keep it? What happens if you break it? Right? Then you come to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I think it's chapter 4, verse 12. We'll look at it in a minute. Which says, this covenant that I'm making with you, don't change one word. Sound familiar? Because you're going to see that in the New Testament again, right? Don't add a word, don't take a word away. Deuteronomy chapter 4. Then the copy of the covenant would be kept in the temple. And it would be there to be read aloud before the people multiple times. So that the people would understand the covenant that they had. Whether it was with a vassal king and an, an overlord, or whether it was with the people and Almighty God. It's structured that way in the old, and it's structured that way in the new. Blessings, cursings, you got the book of Revelation, what we have in the book of Revelation. Don't take away one word. Don't change one, one thing. Don't mess with it. So you have, you'll see that structure, that unity of structure that we see in the Old Testament, that we will also see in the new. Uh, I also want you to see the structure of the first book and the last book. Genesis and Revelation. Genesis begins with the creation of the heavens and the earth. Revelation ends with the recreation of the heavens and the earth. Genesis begins with a theme 
paradise in the garden. Revelation ends with the paradise of heaven. Genesis begins with the theme of marriage. Revelation ends with the great wedding of the Lamb. Genesis begins with a focus on the serpent's deception. Revelation ends with the serpent's destruction. Genesis begins with a curse on the earth. Revelation ends with a curse being lifted. Genesis begins by describing the creation of day and night in the oceans. Revelation ends with no more need of day or night or oceans. Genesis begins with the tree of life among the people. Revelation ends with the tree of life among the people of God. Genesis begins with God dwelling with his people. Revelation ends with God finally dwelling with his people again. The beginning and the end. The two edges of the book tell the story of the beginning and the story of the ending parallel. The, the structural unity, it's, it's the same. The way it's put together, the way that it comes together. Uh, it also forms a, a, a chiasmus. J, uh, Jason loves them. Um, Daniel, there's a lot of uh, chiastic structure in the Bible. It's a, it's a, it's a structural uh, way of studying the Word of God to really show the emphasis of the Word of God. You have the, the, the Old Testament divided into three parts, right? You got the law, prophets, and the writings. Three divisions. How many divisions in the New Testament? Four. The Gospels. The general epistles, the Pauline epistles, and always, all by itself, the Apocrypha, Revelation. Four and three. You think that just happened that way, or somebody dreamed that up? Comes together with seven groups. I'm not saying that proves, oh, there you go, that proves it all. No, I'm just saying there is structure. It fits. It fits together. Here's the, the chiastic structure in the Old Testament. It begins with the story of creation, overall creation. Then it begins to focus down to the story of a city, Jerusalem. Then it begins to focus further down into the story of a king, the Davidic king in the book of Chronicles. Where does the New Testament begin? With the fulfillment of who that Davidic king is in Jesus Christ. Then it moves to Jerusalem, spreads from Jerusalem to Judea, Sumeria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And how does it end? In Revelation with uh, a new creation or the recreation of a new heaven and a new earth. So it follows A, B, C, C, B, A. Not, it's not one author. If this was the Quran and written by just one guy, I would say that's what he meant to do. But it's written by 40 different guys. Put together the way it's put together. So I see God's providence in and through it all, even in the way that it's structured together. Okay, the third part that we really wanted to get into on this is the apostolic authority. So we move from the, the fingerprints of God, the unity, the structure, uh, and all of those things, and we want to move to apostolic authority. The apostles received the gospel for us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus the Christ was sent from God. The Christ, therefore, is from God. And the apostles are from Christ. That's taken from 1 Clement, one of the earliest church fathers. That was the idea uh, of the role of the apostles in the view of the early church. 
It is here then that we come to the second of the three attributes of canonicity. Apostolic authority. 2 Corinthians 3.6. Important scripture. You're going to want to uh, mark that down. Be aware of it. This is what Paul says. He's speaking of himself and the other apostles. And he says this. Who also made us, Paul and the other apostles, sufficient as ministers of the new covenant. The apostles were given a foundational responsibility by Jesus Christ that they were to be the ministers, the deacons of the new covenant. That they are there to establish the new covenant. Not to the letter of the law, uh, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills and the Spirit gives life. We're going to refer to that a couple of times. So... It's going to back up and give you, again, the concept of the covenantal structure. We talked about the covenantal structure. There's a preamble, a historical prologue, stipulations, sanctions, which includes blessings and cursings, and then the deposit of the written text of the covenant in uh, the temple or the holy place. By comparison, we see that exact formation in the Old Testament. Now, why am I bringing this up again? Because that same exact structure, which is built on the old covenant, the giving of the law that was established in the Old Testament, which simply is another way of saying what? Old covenant, right? What's testament? Covenant, same thing. So the Old Testament and the New Testament, just old covenant, new covenant. We're moving from the old covenant to the new covenant, the old promised in Scripture laid out that same thing that we see working its way through the Old Covenant of the Old Testament we see in the New Covenant. uh, In the same way that God instituted the Old Covenant with written documents that, that provide for us what we see today as the Old Testament, God did the exact same thing when He instituted the New Covenant. There was the expectation that it didn't just come as all the New Covenants here, but it would come with new documents, new texts, just like the old texts of the Old Testament were brought out of the giving of the Old Covenant. Are you guys with me? So we see that structure, and we see that same structure in the New Testament. So when the church was foundational, when it's Peter and Paul and John running around and talking to people, and they're spreading the words that they've spoken and that they've written around to all the churches... That was their fundamental job to make sure the structure of the new covenant was established in the writings that they gave. And so the the New Testament doesn't end until the last of the apostles goes home. Who was the last one? Who wrote the last book? John, right? The last one. He lived the longest of them all. When he finished, when he set down his pen... He's saying the foundation of the new covenant, the documents, the preamble, the requirements, the blessing and cursing, and the thing that says don't take away or add to it, the the covenantal curse, it's just complete, don't mess with it. That was done. And he could go. And that was the birth, really, of of the scriptures as we have them. So there was an expectation that if Jesus Christ 
was the fulfillment of the new covenant. There was an expectation there would be new documents. Right? I go buy a car, another car. I have a key. It's all paid for. I don't go buy a new car and take my old loan and stuff in and say, here, I already paid for it. I just pick one. No, no, no. We don't do it like that. How do we do it? We got to draw up new papers. Right? It's not a foreign concept. So the idea there would be new papers, there would be a new text, there would be a new concept. That's what the New Testament is. And it was birthed during the time of the apostles, given to the church at the time of the apostles. And 400 years later, when the church comes to power, it should be expected that when the church is in power, they would say, put a stamp down and say, yes, this is canon. But just because they did it in the 4th century didn't make it less canon in the 1st. You with me? Okay, so let's take a look at the Old Testament Scripture and the New Testament Scripture. Paul, when referring to it, he refers to both the, the covenant, New Covenant and Old Covenant as written text. Written text. Again, the idea that they were expecting there would be written text. 2 Corinthians 3.14 But their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant. So in order for them to read the Old Covenant, what's the Old Covenant have to be? Text, right? You can't read what someone is speaking. What do you read? What somebody wrote. So they were reading the Old Covenant. That same veil remains unlifted because through Christ it is taken away. We see the same thing in Exodus 24-7. They call the Old Covenant the Book of the Covenant. The Old Testament. In Exodus 34... Um, they said that Moses was up on the mountain. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant. He wrote down the text. Deuteronomy 29, 21. The Lord will single him out from all the tribes of Israel for calamity in accordance with the curses of the covenant written where? In the book of the law. So we see that overall the entire Old Testament becomes a book about the covenant. Covenantal structure, the Old Testament, the New Testament falls that same, and it fits. The books all fit together in the same structure as we see in the Old Testament. It makes sense. These are the ones. There's not something missing. There's not a keyhole. Gosh, I wish we had this one. Nope, it's there. We have them. Everything that is in the other structure we have in this one. <clears throat> Again, part of that structure or the rationale for that structure is a redemptive work. Here's how it works. God does a huge work of redemption and then provides revelation detailing out what has been accomplished in the redemption. Old Testament, God delivered the people out of Egypt and he delivered to them revelation so that they would understand what he was looking for from them. Jesus Christ gives us redemption from sin it's expected that God will provide revelation to lay out for us uh, that, that same pattern that we would be able to follow. Revelation is authentication or interpretation of God's redemptive action. It's uh, authentication or interpretation of God's redemptive action. After the exodus from Egypt came the law, <clears throat> and only after a reminder of God's deliverance. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Remember this redemption. Here comes the revelation. And he goes on to give the revelation. Which is, goes through the rest of the book of the law. 
when we look at that in terms of apostolic tradition, we see this idea of redemption, a great work of redemption brings revelation. Okay, so let's take that back to the apostles. <clears throat> the, the apostolic message that they came with, they came with under the authority of Jesus Christ, not on their own authority. It wasn't ever I come on my authority. Look, in Mark 3, 14 through 15, and he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and what? Have authority. Send them out to preach and have authority uh, and to cast out demons. John twenty twenty one. Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. Specific authority God sends them with. Acts 10, 41. Not to all the people... But to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. The responsibility, the apostles are saying it. They're saying, look, this is the, this is the ordination that God gave to us, the job he gave to us to go and do. And somewhere along the way, as you're proclaiming the new covenant, as you're talking about the redemption of Jesus Christ that was revealed in God's condescension through Jesus Christ, the spoken word into their lives, as you're speaking that, as you're sharing those things orally, at some point, we talked about last time, you realize you're not going to live forever, so what do you do? If you got a message for your kids and they're young, what do you do so they can have a message from you when they're old? Write it down. Natural progression. How it would come together from the authority Jesus gave to the words that they took from that point. Second Peter 3, 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. So Peter puts on the same plane the New Testament and the Old Testament. He says they're both scripture spoken by the, our Lord and Savior. They're from him. Puts both what was written by them and what was in the Old Testament. In Hebrews chapter 2. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it has been attested to us by those who heard him. Who were they? That's the apostles. The apostles bringing the message, that distinctive character to them all. So, even if a document was not written directly by an apostle, there would have been good reason to think it bore authoritative apostolic tradition if it was written during the apostolic age, during the time when the apostles were walking and talking and, and ministering, and if it was written by someone who got his information directly from an apostle. So that's what we do with Luke and Mark, right? Mark's not one of the 12. Was he with Jesus? What do you think? Can make an argument that he was. <clears throat> yeah, speculation. We can't say authoritatively. 
There's a young naked man running away from his arrest that church tradition says was John Mark, but we don't know that. But we know that in his house, uh, in John Mark's house, Jesus stayed and taught. So if he was home, (laughs) he had a chance to meet him. But where does the Bible, where do we know that the, the message that Mark shares with us came from? What apostle did it come from? Peter. It's Peter's gospel given to Mark. What about Luke? In the first chapter of Luke, what does Luke say? Eyewitness accounts. I am sharing with you the eyewitness accounts that I put together. So he's saying I, these are the eyewitness accounts from the apostles written at the time of the apostles. So if Luke was bogus, the apostles would have said, hey, whoa, stop. That's bad. What did Paul? Did Paul ever say, hey, hey, that's not a letter from me. Did he ever say that in his epistles? In his epistles, there's a, there's a point in his epistles where he says, look, see with what big letters I write. This is my signature. Though, don't think this is a letter from somebody else. So the, the, the reality is there were other things going out. But God's providence is holding fast to those things which are true, that they can hold to, that they can uh, grab a hold of. Yes, sir. Uh, because it comes f- through apostolic tradition. So he says, uh, it, actually Hebrews is one of the earliest ones. So the only time Hebrews falls out of uh, canon is later on in the 4th century when people say, well, we don't know who wrote it and we don't know if pseudonymity is okay. So a lot of people attribute it to Paul. The message is definitely Pauline, but the writer of Hebrews attributes what he's saying to the apostles, and it fits uh, in all the other books. So it lines up with what they're saying. The difference with other the other ones, when people say, well, what about the epistle of Barnabas? Yeah, it, it's not even close. Take some time, read them. They're crazy. They're not, they're not anywhere close. Or you look at, at, so if you look at Scripture and you read apocryphal, uh, pseudopographia, what, what have you, you're going to see... Uh, um, a pretty major difference. But in, in Hebrews, uh, it declares of itself that it comes through uh, the message of the apostles and it was circulated in the church early enough for the apostles to refute it. But they didn't. So it stayed. Um, we ha- we, next, we talk about apostolic self-awareness. The idea, did the apostles know what they were doing? The opening phrase of Mark, the beginning of the gospel... To Evangelio of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is noteworthy because the distinctive use of Evangelio, the which uh, is gospel, the Greek word for gospel, <clears throat> the term is not originally used until early Christians uh, to refer to written texts, but was a reference to the authoritative message of apostolic preaching. So when Mark uses the word, he is saying this is the apostolic preaching. Of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, right out the gate as he begins. He's saying, hey, this is this is his words. In addition, the phrase son of God uh, occurs not only in in verse one, but again at the end of Mark's gospel in 1539, uh, forming a literary inclusio. This structure suggests that the opening line is more than just an introduction to the Baptists, uh, but it's an implicit claim of authority designed to characterize the work as a whole uh, as the gospel of, 
of or according to Jesus Christ. The apostolic nature of Mark is confirmed by the clear connections that the gospel has with the witness of the apostle Peter himself. Um, Aside from the fact that Mark's connection to Peter is well known in the early church fathers, we see uh, in other parts of the New Testament, the gospel of Mark draws connection to Peter by forming other literary inclusios that center on Peter himself. The first disciple mentioned in Mark, Peter. Last disciple mentioned, Peter. Um, So and the frequency, the inordinate frequency of the name of Peter in the gospel uh, makes it clear that it is understood as a eyewitness account (coughs) source behind Mark's gospel. Uh, In the gospel of John, 21-24, the gospel of John makes it clear that the disciple whom Jesus loved was part of the inner apostolic circle. He was present at the Last Supper in 1323, present at the crucifixion in 1926, with Peter and Jesus at the very end of the gospel in 2120. John 2124 then concludes the gospel by declaring that it is this very disciple who is bearing witness, martyron, about these things and who uh, has written these things, grafsas, which is... uh, a word used for scripture, making it clear that he is the author of John's gospel. Regardless of whether this disciple is acknowledged to be the apostle John, it is clear that the gospel is claiming to contain apostolic eyewitness testimony from someone directly connected to Jesus' inner circle. Uh, Other than some uh, biblical critics who don't accept anything, um, I don't know of any Bible-believing, teaching uh, person that doesn't believe the Gospel of John is written by the Apostle John. It takes someone else uh, to, to make that leap. That it's not from him. But it definitely claims to be written by someone who was there. And it uses the word, grafsas in the, in the Greek to indicate, used to indicate Scripture to say, I am writing this down the idea is he knows what he's doing first thessalonians 2 13 paul emphasizes that the apostolic message borne by the apostles was to be received as the authoritative word of god and we also thank god constantly for this that when you received the word of god which you heard from us you accepted it not as the word of men but what it actually is the word of god so first Thessalonians 2.13, Paul knows what he's doing. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Stand firm and hold to, to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So again, Paul laying out those concepts. They're all over in Pauline. Uh, 1 Corinthians 7.12, 1 Corinthians 14. Uh, 1 Corinthians 14 is an important one, verse 37 and 38. If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge the things I am writing. Grafo. Again, the same root word used to, to indicate scripture. Um, the, what I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. So Paul says, if anyone's spiritual among you, he will tell you that what I'm writing is scripture. What I'm writing is God's commands. So does Paul know he's writing scripture? He's not just writing some letter, random letter. He knows what he's doing. He's putting together. He's writing down the terms of the new covenant. And those new covenant are going are to make up the, the documentation of 
what was the redemptive, the huge redemptive work that God did, Jesus Christ, death, burial, resurrection, on the cross with revelation from God to explain to us the new covenant. That's what the New Testament lays out for us. Uh, Revelation 1, verse 1 through 3, the opening line of the book of Revelation directly claims, it is the inspired prophecy of Jesus Christ delivered to John by an angel. Consequently, there is a divine blessing attached to the book. What is it? Blessed is he who reads, he who hears, and he who obeys the words of this prophecy. Um, there's a, a bunch of stuff in the newts in the newts in the notes about pseudonymity, which is what we were talking about a little bit with the book of Hebrews that kind of explains uh, where the arguments came from about uh, pseudonymity. There's, again, the argument for most uh, authorship that is uh, outside of uh, uh, believers. That they, they question Second Peter, Second and Third John, Jude. Um, I don't remember if they question James. Uh, they question Revelation of New Testament books and Hebrews. Uh, so that'll be under the under the notes on pseudonymity, how that works out, what the argument is for why it shouldn't be used, and and why that argument uh, ultimately doesn't hold as much water. It lays out for us uh, four reasons why we can know that those things are are real. But I'll let you guys read that. Um, <clears throat> the next one is corporate reception. That the church receives the text as scripture. We have early references in the Bible to the Bible as scripture, as canonical. Peter writes in 2 Peter 3.16, As he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Who's he talking about? Paul. There are some things that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do with other scripture. So Peter says, hey, that's word from God. So he acknowledges Paul, word from God. Paul says to Timothy, the scripture says you will not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Remember the section? It's brought up of two, it's two references in the Bible, Deuteronomy 25.4, Luke 10.7, quoted together, both as scripture. The scripture says... So Paul quotes Luke and Paul quotes Deuteronomy. Equal ground, equal footing. The Bible calls itself Scripture. Second Peter 3, 2. That you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Again, you have the, the, the teaching of the apostles put on the same par as that of the prophets of the Old Testament. Then you have the concept of it being read publicly. Read publicly. The canonical texts were called to be read publicly. And when this letter has come to you, Colossians 4, uh, when it has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. So the idea of them being read aloud. Remember I told you part of the uh, structure, the covenantal structure, was that they would be stored in the temple and that they would be read aloud that they were to be read aloud before the people same thing we see with the new testament first thessalonians i put you under oath before the lord 
Have this letter read to all the brethren. Revelation 1.3, blessed is he who reads, he who hears, and he who does. 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of the scripture. And we have a host of early church fathers and the early church fathers who lay out for us the concept that the things written by the 12 apostles and the books that we have affirmed to us in our New Testament are all scripture. Toward the end of the notes, I have a, a section on the uh, what's, what we would call the problem books, the books that have been questioned, and responses to those books, evidence for their inclusion. Those are in the notes. The disputed books, James, Jude, <clears throat> 2 Peter, 2 3 John, Revelation. None of the early church fathers ever rejected Hebrews. was never on the disputed list. The rejected books that the early church fathers outright rejected was the Shepherd of Hermas and the Epistle of Barnabas. Um, rejected, they said these are not canonical. They don't, they don't fit. They don't tell the story. They don't finish the story. They don't fit in the package of what God did through the apostles. So they're good books. They were used a lot by early church fathers. Good in terms of there was nothing harmful in those books. But they were rejected as canon. However, these books were rejected as heretical. The Gospel of Thomas. Probably the best known uh, gospel to modern readers. Uh, it's got some crazy things in it. But the most infamous is its final line. Jesus said, for every woman who makes herself male will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Strange. Gospel of Thomas. Uh, it was declared heretical by the early church fathers. So in the first and second century, they had said, stay away. Bad book. Not good. Gospel of Peter, same way. Declared to be heretical. Keep it away. Stay away from it. Uh, ultimately, the closing of the canon occurs in the fourth century. as a good a date as any. When the church puts its stamp of approval on the 27 books as we have them today. So it's a, a basic outline of the concept of what we mean when we say self-authenticating. The evidence, internal evidence, uh, external evidence is taken into account. The texts and things we talked about, uh, not today, but the week before, last week. Though that information is also in the notes if you want to go over that again. The different texts uh, that we have from the uh, first three centuries to take a look at the copies that get us as close to the original as we can get. That lays out the, the concept of where canon comes from. So maybe we got a couple questions. we got a few minutes. Anybody want to throw one up? Burning question in your mind. Uh, not as available as it is today. Right. I mean, did every house... Every synagogue, houses would have some. They would memorize the whole book of Deuteronomy, usually by the time they were 13. Um, the, uh, so houses had them. The problem was the Old Testament was primarily kept in scrolls. So to carry 39 scrolls around with you, they didn't make a scroll that had multiple books traditionally in it because it would have been really big. 
So the scrolls were kept usually in the synagogue. If you had a synagogue, the scripture was kept there. Uh, and then you could, you, you may have a scroll or two in your home or take a scroll or two from the synagogue home so that you could study scripture. Um, so it was available that way. 270 BC, uh, the Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's where we get the Septuagint today, which uh, at least gives us an idea what the early rabbis thought about certain biblical uh, texts that we have, um, Hebrew texts in the Old Testament. Um, so at that time, you start to see the Old Testament in, I think, what they call codices, which is books. Um, but, it, but traditionally, it was not used as much that way. The, the scripture that Jesus quotes in Luke chapter 4 in the synagogue at Nazareth, it says they gave him the scroll. He found the place in Isaiah where it was written, and he began to read Isaiah 61. So um, I would say traditionally it was like that. However, because the Jews were such book people, scrolls, the writings, the, the papers, the early Christians uh, uh, definitely went toward books. Uh, if you remember, not this week, but last week I talked about the, the books that were found together. Remember, four Gospels found together. Acts is found with them. Some of the Pauline epistles. And they didn't have the, the cover. The beginning and the end wasn't there. So there were probably other books that were part of it. So they began to gather them together in books uh, within the first century. That, that was, it was moving from scrolls to books. So it would become uh, more prevalent. Uh, it had to be incredibly prevalent by the amount of, of textual transmission we have. Because um, I don't think Jason was here when I talked about but the the extent uh, um, um, manuscripts that I talked about last time were the ones we have in the first three centuries. But we have copies through from then till, you know, the modern printing press. So we have an abundance of copies. There are copies coming out of our ears, which actually is a good thing for us because we can look at all those copies from beginning to end and say, hey, how do we do on the transmission? We get it right. If we didn't get it right, fix what we didn't get right. You know, work it out. So, so working those things out. We'll talk about that next time. But we have a huge corpus group of of the New Testament, like no other book that was copied and copied and copied and copied, and not like telephone, where you have copy, copy, copy in a line, but but the opposite, sideways. So, the all in the fourth century, we have, you know. All these copies in the fifth century, all these copies, six and more and more and more from the same time period, not going through time. So we can compare together all the ones that we have and uh, really helps us be able to say with affirmation that what we have is uh, is what the apostles put down. So it helps us nail those things down. Anybody else? Yes, that's the short answer. The long answer takes longer. But the Catholic Church, remember, their model is that the church has authority over everything. So the, it's not that the church tells, the scripture tells the church how to be. The church tells the people how to be and, and the church controls scripture. When the Protestant Reformation takes place and the Protestant Church breaks off, the Catholic Church... Uh, Adopts the Apocrypha so that the Bibles would be different. So I would say primarily the primary issue is political.
so that they could say, we have the whole of Scripture. But prior to that time, it was always considered apocryphal. And the apocryphal books that the Catholic, it's just the Old Testament apocrypha. It's not new. They don't have the New Testament apocrypha, and nobody is that crazy. The Old Testament apocrypha, 1st, 2nd Maccabees, uh, Tobit, uh, um, uh, I'm trying to think of the other one. What's the other one? Um, but they, as they brought those, they brought those in. They were, had always been around, never been a part of canon until uh, during the time of the Reformation. As that Reformation's taking place and the church is breaking off, you got East and West, and then you got reformers going off over here. The church made some decisions because that they had the authority to do so. They still have the authority today to declare scripture. Like the writings of of uh, of who? What was it? No. That's a different church. <laughs> the the Pope the Pope declared uh, Mother Teresa uh, and her writings. So uh, the Pope can say this is scripture or what I spoke ex cathedra that is scripture now. It overrides whatever was said before. So that's a model that puts authority in the church. As opposed to the word. Yeah, there's a lot of things, really, differences between uh, Catholic doctrine and Protestant doctrine, the least of which is not justification by faith and, uh, and, and the comprehension of what that means and how that works. Um, not that every cat person involved in Catholic Church understands that, that that's what Catholic doctrine is, you know. It's like every Mormon doesn't know what a Mormon believes either, and any more than every Christian knows what the Word of God teaches. So, so, uh, but prayerfully, we'll be students who are are ready and equipped and able to rightly divide the Word of God. Any other questions? No. I got you swimming. So, Levi's got the notes. If you want to grab them, about forty pages of uh, chaos. <laughs> if you can't make sense of them or you think, uh, just keep in mind, I'm the one who wrote them. So, uh, but you um, are welcome to call me and say, hey, I have a question about this or that, and I'll be happy to go over it with you. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you as, uh, as we just discussed the canon and how canon was arrived at, Lord, how we got the 27 books, Lord, that uh, the idea that the Word of God teaches us is... Uh, when it was finished, it was finished. The church was utilizing them from the beginning, from the word go. And the word of God did not require an organization to say, hey, it's as, this is actually the word of God. Because it was the word of God. It was authoritative out the gate. And it was affirmed when the church saw the power of the word of God working in the lives of believers across the centuries. Lord, we just thank you that we can know that we can stand on this foundation and that your foundation is firm. And Lord God, I pray that you would uh, just help us grow and desire to understand these things more and more every day. God, that we might uh, just feel comfortable standing where you ask us to stand and proclaiming the truth of your word. God, we give you praise and ask your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, if you guys have more questions and stuff or you want to do some more research, a great book on canonicity is a book called uh, the canon revisited written by dr michael kruger um 
And if you, next week we're going to be talking about textual transmission and what that looks like and, and what those things mean. A really good book that deals with textual transmission, though it's not specifically called a textual transmission book, is called The King James Only Controversy, uh, and it's written by Dr. James White. So if you want to look at just doing some more research on, on what information is out there, those are a couple of great sources. God bless you. Go in peace. Canon Revisited by Dr. Michael Kruger. Uh, King James Only Controversy by Dr. James White. No, nah, it's it's thinner. <laughs>